0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach.
1: Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. In 1876, Herman Melville wrote, This world clean fails me, still I yearn. I had an English professor in college, Charles Nichols, who intoned those words every single time our class met. The world clean fails me. Still I yearn. He he really worked the yearn. <laughs> but he was yearning and the world was failing him in the soft 70s. I mean, come on. Think about the last year. Think about the four years that we've just endured. So the line, and it comes from a poem that Melville wrote, comes at me all the time. I think I read something about, I don't know, Ivanka and Jared not letting their security detail use their bathrooms when they're protecting them. And I think these times, this world clean fails me. I had the quote wrong for a long time. I thought it was these times clean fail me. Anyway, my friend Diana Waymar, the genius behind the Tiny Pricks Project, embroidered it for me. And you can see it on my website at LisaBurnbach.com. You know, it's hard to wrap our heads around everything that is happening. It's too much too fast. It's like a ball boy that's broken and is just spewing balls at you. The good that has occurred only happened because of the god-awful things that made them happen. If Trump at all had been less evil, just even a little bit less evil and craven and greedy, they might have won themselves a second term. We now see how close it was. Yes, he got impeached again, but marauding, defacing, sacking, vandalizing, and ultimately murdering in our iconic capital will do that. It will get you impeached a second time. I just want to say something about that new Congresswoman, Lauren Boebert from uh, Colorado. She showed up to work the other day with a gun. She refused to walk through the metal detector. I guess they would have had to have taken her gun away. And apparently, she's the one who gave some of those terrorists a map of who's who in the office plan of the houses of Congress. She's got to go. That's all I wanted to say about her. Well... Eight extremely long years ago, I watched with pleasure as Barack Obama and Joe Biden took their second oaths of office. Next Wednesday, I will again watch with pleasure the next inauguration. Now, wait, we're going to have an inauguration with a tiny crowd because of security. You've seen all the guards who are bivouacked all over Capitol and, and, and the Hill. Well, It just makes me think about the original sin of Donald Trump was lying about his inaugural crowd. Doesn't that seem pitiful? Doesn't it even seem more pathetic that we even pursued it and got to alternative facts and Sean Spicer and what's her name? It's just, it's been a strange time. I want my four years back. I want them refunded. I want my brown hair back. This week's guest I met a few months ago when I was a guest on his very good podcast called Crazy Money. Paul Olinger has had an interesting life starting as a slacker, then going through the mba I don't know, sausage factory at, at Dartmouth at Amos Tuck. And then he was a Silicon Valley guy, one of the first 250 at Facebook. He's been in meetings with Zuckerberg. I've tried to talk to him about him you know, they're very tight-lipped about that guy. Anyway, now, with all that education, with all that promise, he is a stand-up comedian in Atlanta. But he also has this cool podcast. And I want to talk about reinvention because the pandemic has forced all of us to reassess where we are and how we get back to where we want to be or how to work from home or how to work part-time or how to become entrepreneurial. So, I think you'll enjoy the conversation, but first I think you'll want to hear my five things that made life better this week. Number one, impeachment. Yeah. You know what else is meaningful to me and why it makes me happy? Because everything's been so slow. The recount, the recounts recount, then the recount in another state, then a re-this and then a re-that. Everything's been redone and we're all you know, just waiting for things to happen. And the impeachment, the vote to impeach Donald Trump happened exactly seven days after the riot. So that's pretty good. It can happen. It can happen. Things can move quickly when they have to. Number two. Oh, this is a good one. My 90-year-old mother, my dear mother, got her first COVID vaccine already. That is just the best news. I mean, I I don't mean to be selfish. I want all of you and all of us to get the vaccine, but I'm thrilled that I was able to do that for her. Uh, By the way, in order to get it and schedule it and all of that, it had to be done online. And unfortunately, my mother no longer really uses the computer, didn't remember her email password or anything. So my brother and I opened a new account for her. So if you have elderlies in your family and you're trying to get them the vaccine, you might have to do that for them too, a a digital intervention. But we're on our way to the end of this plague, I hope. I hope. Number three, (coughs) Sheila the puppy seems to like me. I feel like Sally Field. She likes me. She really likes me. And all for just a third of a cup of kibble twice a day. Doesn't take much. Okay, number four is an Instagram account called Drive and Listen, Drive Ampersand Listen. My digital friend Ellen Angel Schulk recommended it. Now, Ellen, whom I've never met, is the founder of the Five Things That Make Life Better fan page on Facebook Hint, hint, if any of you want to see that. I'm very grateful for it. This Drive and Listen app is really cool. It has a, I don't know how many cities, I should have counted, but cities all over the world from Amsterdam to Zurich. And you can watch, it, it's as if you're in a car or motorcycle or in Rome, I felt like I was in a vest, but driving around the city. You can listen to street sounds or you can listen to radio in that country. The videos are not current. They're not live. I noticed nobody was wearing a mask. That, that sort of helped me understand that. But it's still, it's still an adventure. You can spend 20, 30 minutes driving around Barcelona. And I've never been to Barcelona. And I think the fact that there are no masks makes it even dreamier and more like a wonderful vacation. So check that out. And number five, the game Codenames. Have you all played this? I have a feeling once I've learned about something, it's passe, but my friend Fred Bernstein asked if we played it. I'd never heard of it. You play it on laptops. You need a team, two people. There's a spy catcher and a spy master or something. I forget the titles. But if you remember Hasbro's game, Guess Who? By the process of elimination, you figure out who your rival's person is, if they're holding a basket or if they have brown hair or whatever. Well, this is a little bit like that. It's also not like that. You have to be very smooth, very clever with your hints because you have to gather groups together. I can't explain it in any way that would make it sound good, but we had a one-hour play date with wine. I didn't have to go anywhere, and I didn't think about anything but the spy game for an hour. I can't wait to do it again. It was really fun. Speaking of fun... Paul Ollinger is here. Don't go away. I met Paul Ollinger when he invited me to be on his terrific podcast called Crazy Money. At first, I wasn't sure I wanted to talk about money, but we'll get into that. Paul has been around money in different aspects. He went to Amos Tuck at Dartmouth to get an MBA. We're going to talk about that. And then he used all that education and all that student debt to become a stand-up comic. Wah, wah, wah. And I thought what Paul and I would talk about today is reinvention because you have done that. So welcome to my podcast, Paul. It's sorry about the green
0: room. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, the snacks in the green room are a little laughingly
1: subpar. Subpar.
0: I'll give you a quarantine pass, but in eighteen months when I come back, we better have a better uh, state.
1: Well, I know we should at least have pretzels or something. So, Paul, I read your funny book. You should totally get an MBA, and I want to talk about that too but your life seems to have been a three-parter so far there was the goo of your young life where we all grow up in a goo okay and, and find out that we've been sleepwalking or something then there was that decisive moment which you capitalized on in a parking lot when you found out you got into a top 10 business school uh-huh and then there was the kind of silicon valley high-end big life and then there's this post Silicon Valley life in Atlanta. Yeah, I think that is that three or four. Four. Oh God. So okay, wh- when you were building your career or thinking about what you would be as an adult, what were you thinking?
0: I I think, and it goes all the way back to. Eighth or ninth grade. I got good grades. I worked hard in school because I grew up in a middle class, slightly upper middle class family, six kids, and Mm. my parents worked really hard. They didn't spend much money. And I witnessed what I believed to be economic stress. And I thought to myself, if I work hard, I'll get into a good college and if I get into a good college I can get a job as a bank loan officer and someday I'll be the regional manager of a bank and I can drive a Buick LeSabre and have Ralph Lauren sheets. That was basically my goal and I think
1: That's the American dream.
0: That's exactly right. And this is before right. Steinmart and TJ Maxx allowed for middle class people to have to really own Ralph Lauren stuff. <laughs>
1: exactly. And when you got into Tuck which you didn't think you would do, you would finesse. Did you think okay this is it. Now my life is going to be win, win, win. I can, buy, I can buy Ralph Lauren retail.
0: Well, as you know, that every time you reach some achievement, it really is just the beginning of a new phase of, of work where you have to prove yourself. And yes, I when I got into business school and I got into a very good one, I was very proud to go to Tuck. When I got in, I was like, oh, but this is just the beginning of this next journey. And then you have to go there and work hard there. And then And then when you graduate, you have to prove yourself to employers. And so, but when I got there, I did have this for the first time in my life, I looked at my resume and I was like, I can determine where I go from here. I can decide which path to follow and I might as well choose the one that I think is the most exciting as opposed to taking the safe path. And that's what getting into a school like Tuck did for me, is it opened my mind a little bit to its, to its potential.
1: I guess it both, it validates you because that golden ticket says, we believe in you. We think you can survive here and thrive here. And it gives you a new cohort who are also thinking these thoughts and thinking big thoughts and being ambitious
0: a phenomenal cohort and that really the the quality of my classmates and their expectations of what they wanted out of their careers and how hard they were going to work to get to the top levels of Wall Street and corporate America was it wasn't just that they were great people and that together we would get there. It was like, oh, they're great people, and they got here because they worked hard, and they were planning to continue to work hard to get to that next level, which is the financial golden fleece. It doesn't happen when you get to business school. All you get when you get to business school financially is is debt. until until you can monetize that, or unless you have a rich uh, uncle or parents to help pay for it.
1: So you're at business school and you're hosting these um, sketch nights or comedy nights or open mic things. And everybody says, God, Paul, you're so funny. And you think, you know what? I really like this.
0: It was the fr- I'd been in plays in high school, but I had never told jokes in front of an audience before, and I just made fun of my classmates in the same manner that I would have made fun of my brothers and sisters, of whom I have uh, five brothers. And you
1: sisters. have so, you have so many.
0: Yeah, I've got yeah. a big Catholic family, six kids. It was just ball busting like you do at the dinner table, and you know people thought it was hilarious. And for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I'm not that southern. For the first time in, life, <laughs> in your life, in my life, I I felt this wave. Of Of laughter come my way in one spontaneous moment. And I was like, that, that, give me more of that drug.
1: That's better than money.
0: Well, I didn't have, I'd never experienced any money at that point either, but it was equivalent to sex, which I was uh, still, you know, a, a newbie at almost at that time anyway. You know, what's
1: so interesting is that the idea of business school is make money. I mean, I didn't go to business school, obviously. And you could tell that from my apartment. But what I mean is, I don't know anyone who goes to business school with any idea other than this degree will give me a leg up so I can start my business career at six figures and I can be rich by seven years from now or something.
0: I think that's that's an accurate assessment. And that's what I thought going in. I mean, I went to business school- because I wanted to make more money but but also because I didn't know how I could do it because I didn't really I didn't have the network I didn't have the sophistication or the knowledge of the way the corporate world worked. so I felt like going back to business school was a path for me to figure out a lot of those things before I committed to the next job that I was going to take and and it really became more of When I got there, I was like, okay, well, among all these smart people who are ambitious and want to make money, what's unique about me? So it was more of a personal journey than I expected it to be. And I I certainly didn't expect to want to come out of there wanting to be a comedian because that would be the worst return on investment anybody had ever thought of in the world.
1: Yes, yes. Because sometimes you get a drink at an open mic and sometimes you don't. (laughs) Now, so you went out to Yahoo and to Facebook. Does Zuckerberg have a sense of humor? By the way,
0: well, are you allowed to say? I I think that I've been gone for almost ten years from Facebook. So the um, what is it when you commit a crime and the uh, you get seven years before you before you can talk. Before- Statute of limitations okay well I think in ten years I can uh, ten years later I can say so I made Mark Zuckerberg laugh and in, in, uh, and I don't know him well I don't claim to know him, but in my orientation and this is back when he attended all the new employee orientations I me, I made him laugh with a math joke he said, well, the average age or the 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 mean age of a Facebook user is X and the median age is y, and I said, well what's the mode and he goes <laughs> <Yeah>. the mode. <laughs> <laughs> There's my, there's my big Mark Zuckerberg story for you.
1: I don't even know what that means, but I think it's hilarious. Um, What color hoodie was he wearing that day? Do you remember? Probably
0: black or blue, but he was, he definitely wore the hoodie and he, you know, he walked around and uh, he was Mark Zuckerberg.
1: Yeah. You know, what's funny, maybe three years ago, we would have talked about your past at Facebook and you wouldn't have mentioned that because of the statute. And I would have thought, oh, that's so cool! You worked at Facebook. Now I think of Facebook as kind of an evil empire. <laughs> um, isn't that funny? And so now I think, oh, you worked at Facebook. Well, good thing having not- having seen the social dilemma. Uh, which I'm sure you've seen, it's just about how big and unwieldy the universe is that he and others created and even you did.
0: I don't think that anybody anticipated, when, even when I was working there 10 years ago, how big this thing and how influential it would be in global politics and opinion and all that. In fact, I was on the ad sales team there, and when we were selling ads in 2009, 2010, the company wouldn't allow some of the targeting, some of the most basic fundamental user targeting, meaning using their age, mm-hmm. or their gender, or their location or alma mater to target ads. They wouldn't do it back then because they said it would be a violation of privacy. Well, oh well, hello. So the policies have changed significantly since then, and eighty-five percent of those policy changes are were, were safe and prudent, and the others beyond that, I, I I don't really have enough insight to comment.
1: And they don't use italics. You can't use italics, which is was the beginning of my disenchantment with Facebook. But okay, so you so did you? No, it's a problem. For somebody who believes in nuance and sarcasm, italics are are necessary.
0: What? How do you prioritize uh, bold font versus italics?
1: I, I I just it's it's kind of vulgar. <laughs> I just don't like a bold. I don't like a bold. If look, I'm an older person. I have old school tastes. I like a serif. So we shouldn't even be talking about it. <laughs> But the fact that there is no italic, There's- I, I I'm very disturbing. But it's not your problem. All we, have other th- you're, you're- we have other things to talk about.
0: The next podcast can be all about fonts with Lisa Bernbach.
1: I think, by the way, I think there is such a thing in the world of gazillion podcasts.
0: Surely there is.
1: Surely there is. And surely it has a sponsor. Um, I like this one. Okay. So you do, you were living in California, right? When you worked at these two giant companies?
0: Well, they were, they were they were separated by a two-year stint doing stand-up comedy. I, I came out of business school and I wanted to work in the TV or film business because I wanted to be discovered in a marketing meeting and put in front of the camera. But Oh, right. But then, The funny guy. Yeah, the funny guy, right? But then nobody would hire me and I didn't get any traction in that field. So I thought, and this is in 1997, I thought, well, this internet thing is new. Maybe I should be looking for jobs in that industry. Brilliant. And I found one for a music website called launch.com. Com And I sold ads there for uh, four years. And then the dot-com bubble exploded and um, the company, we'd gone public and then we laid off, I don't know, 80% of the company. And then Yahoo bought us at the bottom of the dot-com bubble. And then we all went to work for Yahoo. And then we enjoyed the resurgence of Yahoo under the leadership of Terry Semel for four years. Mm-hmm. And I paid off my student loans and I thought, I'm still single. I have a net worth now. Mm -hmm. I will go and do comedy and I will achieve fame in a very short period of time. And so I went and I started doing comedy out in California, hosting at the Improvs in Orange County every weekend for two years. And it was great. But after a certain point, I was like, this isn't going as quickly as I thought I as, as I thought it would. Mm-hmm. And then I got engaged and I needed a job. And a friend of mine I had worked with at Yahoo called me and said, Do you have any interest in working at this small social media company called Facebook? Wow. And that's how I and it was about 250 employees at the time. And that's how <gasps> that's how I got hooked up with Facebook.
1: Wow, Paul. Okay. Was the friend from Yahoo who went to Facebook who offered you that job? Was that person a business school friend?
0: No, he was a Yahoo friend. Working at Yahoo was a fantastic time. A lot of great people worked there, and he was a friend from Yahoo. So
1: you really didn't have to get that MBA. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, I could have done the, the, the media sales, the digital media sales world does not require an MBA. Uh, so on some level, no, I, I, I didn't necessarily have to have it to enjoy the career I did.
1: But it's nice to have. It's nice to have. It really is a credential that people respect.
0: It gave me a lot of commonality with the people that I was calling on, the marketers that I was calling on. Many of them, if not most of them, had MBAs. It sort of was a a distinguishing- It's a calling card. Yeah. It was a nice thing to have. It was a nice-
1: Right. A nice (laughs) $150,000 thing to have, but I'm all for education I'm all for, if you can stay in school, I'm all for it. I think uh, I would give anything to be in school now. I would love it. Imagine. I mean, when you're an adult, you think not Zoom school, but you think how fantastic it would be to just read stuff and expand your mind and have a great teacher leading you along.
0: That's what I'm doing. That's that. That's how I feel about the podcast. I read 50 books last year. Many of them are boring philosophy books that I find to be fascinating at 51 years old. And I never would have read a page of when I was 18 to 22, when, when somebody else was paying tuition for me to go to college.
1: Right. Exactly. The podcast. Okay. So Flash forward, why did you move to Atlanta and how did you reinvent yourself?
0: So after almost four years at Facebook, they asked me to move up to headquarters and it was a very flattering offer, but I was I was burned out and I'd moved around. I'd lived in five different places since business school and I mm. was yearning to put down some roots and my mother was sick back here in the Southeast. My wife was on bed rest with our second child who showed up eight weeks early. And who turned 10 on Thursday. Oh, man. So there's a lot going on. And I just decided if I was going to go anywhere, I was going to move home. Terrible career move, great life move, great family move. And we've been back here for almost a decade now.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's life. It's work-life balance, right?
0: And that's a really difficult thing to strike these days. And in my weak moments, when I think back, gosh, if I would have moved to Palo Alto, you know how much more money I would have. Well, maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't have my health. Maybe my marriage wouldn't be as strong. Mm-hmm. And so I can only I can only look at the things that are going really really well in my life, and I was treated very fair by Facebook. So
1: so I have to ask a very bad taste question. Go for it. I hate myself for asking this, but did you get stock, uh, a lot of stock when you uh, worked there? I did, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Back then, everybody, every new employee got, and and probably still, although I don't know what the details are, uh, everybody got an amount of stock options or restricted stock. And when you join a company and it's worth, I don't know, call it $2 billion dollars, and then it's eventually worth $500 billion. Yeah. Even if you didn't get a giant pot of stock, your stock is worth many multiples of, of what it was when you first got there. So if you're prudent with it, you, uh, you can goof off and do comedy and do podcasts. And- That's
1: fantastic. And okay. The podcast, wait, what should we talk about first? The podcast or the book?
0: The podcast is really what I'm all about now. The book was really fun and I enjoyed writing it and I'm proud of it. And anybody that's going to is considering business school or has a nephew or a son or a daughter or a niece that is considering business school, I recommend an enjoyable, lighthearted read with actual real data and insights into the top business schools.
1: You know, I wrote a college guidebook, which had, I thought, very important data too, like coolest dorm, (laughs) attitudes towards sex, and uh, where to get the best pizza and so on. And you've done a lot of those same things, big city versus small town, proximity to Cinnabons, you know, things that people need to know.
0: Well, as I told you uh, over email, after I revisited the the official preppy handbook for for our interview on uh, my podcast, I realized that, and I hadn't read, I hadn't looked at it in, I don't know, 25 or 30 years. And I realized that I was channeling the kind of writing that you were doing in your books. So I was unintentionally aping you. I may have even plagiarized you stylistically. Oh,
1: so many have.
0: (laughs) Uh, what's the, what's the point? What's the use? So yeah, well, you can have the $10,000 that I that <laughs> I, I, can, I can absorb your debt. You, you can take a portion of it, please.
1: Yeah. So the podcast is fabulous. I mean, it's a really interesting concept. I, I loved your podcast. First of all, you're the most prepared host. You're fantastic interviewer. But also, it's you're looking at money, which is, of course, all anybody is really worried about from so many different points of view. And it's hard work to get all those points of view.
0: I, I really care about this topic. And I arrived at it when I moved back to Atlanta. Shortly thereafter, I quit Facebook and I didn't have a plan. And I was just like, ah, screw it. I've got enough money. Meaning will find me. And three months later, I found myself shoving Cheetos into my bored face on my couch, wondering what I should do with my life and and how to channel the energy of my very bored and dangerous brain. And I realized that just having money isn't the whole deal. It's not, I mean, it's a great place to start, but really a life without meaningful work is not a very rewarding life. And that was the first time it really ever even dawned on me to think about that kind of stuff and then i start i dove into as much reading as i could and i've written a whole lot about the topic and 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 a few years ago my buddy mike carano said you need to start a podcast about all this start and so two years ago we put out the first one and we've come at it through the lens of people that have had all their money stolen by bernie madoff people that have made a lot of money and retired and not known what to do people that have won nobel prizes people that have been at the highest levels of their sport like Apollo Ono and PGA uh, champion Rich Beam. And then they have to reinvent themselves because once you get to those heights, very few people stay there for very long.
1: Well, one thing I've noticed is that people who become sudden millionaires or sudden multi-millionaires are not mostly are are very imprudent about it. You know, some athlete gets a $30 million contract and they buy or he buys three very, very expensive, fancy cars and some jewelry. And then what? There's no real template for how to be rich.
0: Well, it's those poor rich people. Yes, it's well, it's hard to find one, and really, you know, we take a lot of pleasure looking at lottery winners and young athletes who squander all this money. Which
1: I don't take pleasure from that.
0: Well, I think I think I think people do in the same way they watch reality television and look at these crazy people and they think, well, thank God that's not me. I'm smart. But I think all of us, or a lot of us educated people who are doctors or lawyers or whatever, that we're actually living a slow motion lottery. And we don't realize that we've all built these same kind of constraints on our own life. And you look at the guy who's 52 years old and he's a partner in an investment bank or at a law firm and he's working 70 hours a week. And he hates his life, but he can't break out of it because he's got an ex-wife and he's got a lake house and he's got all these trappings that limit his freedom. And we don't think about those things when we're thirty-two years old and you know, setting our course for our- and
1: buying the stuff that becomes kind of your prison.
0: That's exactly right. So whether or not it's sort of the flash in the pan person that gets that big NFL contract or the person that wins the lottery, I think there's lessons to take away for all of us where no matter where we sit on the on the economic spectrum, no matter how how old we are to really think about what role do we want money to play in our lives and, and how do I use money to help me be as happy as I can be? Because rich and happy are not synonyms.
1: Right, they're not. And from all those happiness studies, I mean, I am so old, I remember when you couldn't study happiness, and now you can major in it. But they all say the same, that the person who wins the lottery and the person who becomes suddenly widowed or bereft or has some tragedy, both go back to the level of happiness they were prior to the event the good one and the bad one
0: that's right that's the the concept is is called the hedonic treadmill meaning that whether that we basically we all have a set point of happiness and there's some other research that says eh, maybe that's not quite true but eventually we find meaning in our lives whether or not terrible things happen to us and or we recede to a base level of happiness even after we win the lottery or get that promotion or whatever and that if you really want to be happy You should try to develop an awareness of the things that you have in your life that are good and not put too much value on, as Fitzgerald would call it, your radiantly imagined future with flowers and gold and girls and stars. Like they sound great and they are in the short run, but they don't pay off in the long run.
1: That Fitzgerald could write, couldn't he?
0: You know, I was a big Fitzgerald. Uh, I consumed as much Fitzgerald as I could in college. And it wasn't until, you know, 25, 30 years later, I was like, oh, this is what he was talking about.
1: Yeah. Oh, I just I just had like a kind of a stroke when you quoted him because he says it in so few words, but yet it's so evocative. You don't need it all. It's true. It's true. And the other thing, Paul, is our lives, as you've exemplified, change over time. And the one long stretch of career and family may change into six jobs, into seven homes, into who knows what. Well, you might be Zoom schooling for three years. You know, Nobody knows.
0: The uncertainty that has been introduced in our life in the past year is a great demonstration of why it's important to really understand what you want out of life and and to be grateful for all the things that you have because you don't know how long they're going to stick around. And I think there's a lot of people that are really hurting right now, so I don't want to make light of it. But I am so much more grateful for the 80% of things we get to do today than I was for the 100% of things we got to do a year ago, and it's because of these things were taken away from us that you realize yeah. how valuable they are. My son's fall baseball season, and, and fortunately here in Atlanta, we did get to have a fall baseball season, but we enjoyed every single game in a way that we never would have enjoyed the spring season. It wasn't right. taken away that we realized, man, this is this is really what it's all about.
1: I miss it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's been, I mean, when the history of this shocking period of time, both the pandemic and the dystopia that we've been living through, when it's over and far enough in our rear view mirror that we can wax philosophic about it, I think there will be a lot of gratitude because if we are fortunate enough to be able to survive without getting COVID, without losing our dear ones, You know, what else matters?
0: Well, the more I read and I've done 96 episodes of the podcast now, Mm -hmm. call that, I don't know, 80 books or something like that, or at least 80 plus themes of things that we've talked about at length. One of the consistent themes that keeps coming up is gratitude. And the gratitude is, is really one of the only ways that you can sustainably maintain happiness that, 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 you know, putting your hopes and things beyond that are generally foolish.
1: I was going to make a joke and say that and the Bergdorf shoe sale, but I'm not going there. I'm not going to go there because
0: that's just cheap. Yeah, no, but you know, there is short-term happiness at the Bergdorf shoe sale on several levels, which, you know, the beauty of that pair of shoes, the understanding that you've got a great deal. uh, But There's a reason why so many people have 80 to 400 pairs of shoes in their closet. It's because (sighs) they don't sustain that level of energy you get on that day.
1: Well, and also if you gain or lose 10, 20 pounds, you can still fit into shoes, but (laughs) we digress because now it's time. I I really, I've loved this conversation because you're so thoughtful about these things and I think that the typical career person, just, you know, we all we all feel this way. I think, especially now. now, you don't have to be a company man, but just life is fragile. It's precious. We go about our daily stuff and we don't think about the big picture a lot because we're just grateful to have a job and we have tasks and we have obligations and we have family and we have so on. But this point to stop and understand what we have is is really important and you're very good at it and I have to recommend your podcast because crazy money gets you to think and it's got a great title Thank and a you. great host.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Paul Ollinger, you made up a very good list of your five things and you sent it to me twice and I would love <laughs> you to share it with our guests, so I mean our listeners. So, number 1
0: My life fitness treadmill. Not a hedonic treadmill. Not a hedonic treadmill, but uh, the metaphor is never lost on me when I'm listening to a book about the hedonic treadmill. (laughs) On your treadmill. If only the hedonic treadmill burned calories, we would all be supermodels, Lisa.
1: Oh, my God. I'd be so
0: hot. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what I love about the life fitness treadmill and it's, and I'm not, I I mean, I work out and I'm an exercise person, but I'm not like a crazy exercise person. But this, every time I get on it, I'm happy that I spent the extra money to buy (laughs) the treadmill. I had a free one that my friend gave me and it was a piece of junk and I'd slide all over the place and I never felt stable on it. And then I was like, you know what? The gym equipment is ridiculously expensive, but in this case, you plop down a few thousand bucks and you get something that you're gonna keep for 10 years and you're always gonna wanna use. And during COVID, and and I, I need to discuss my privilege here. I live in Atlanta where we have square footage coming out of our ears. We have the opportunity to have space to exercise in our homes. And I'm also grateful for that, especially during the quarantine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good point in terms of spending the money Uh, should i spend the extra two thousand dollars well if you feel secure on the machine and you enjoy the machine that's the whole point it's not to tell people you have it it's to use it
0: right and i don't believe me i'm i've inherited a, a large degree of my father's frugality uh so i don't spend money just to spend it but i i i feel satisfied uh I feel I feel proud, I guess, on some level. Is that the right word? When might be when I spend a little bit extra money and I feel like it was worth it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Number two.
0: Five AM.
1: Okay. Five AM. Somebody who's seen five AM, I guess
0: regularly so 5am is my happy time and it and my 26 year old self would would howl laughing at that statement but between 5am and 6:40am when i wake up my children is the most peaceful and productive time of my day it's me and coffee and ideas and I get a lot done and I feel like I'm in the flow. Oh, wow. At that time of the morning. Even if I'm just doing research or reading the news, I feel like I'm where I am supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing.
1: Oh, that's a great feeling. Isn't it? Oh, yes. Yes. I find that elusive, but magical. It's not, it's not like, oh, this is what I was put on the earth to do. Oh, I was put on the earth to drink coffee <laughs> and
0: read news. There are worse purposes or, or reasons for being, yeah.
1: And then tweet all day. That is not why I was put on the earth. Thank you for reminding me.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Note to self, stop tweeting. Number three.
0: Brooklyn Brewery's Special Effects Hoppy Amber.
1: That is the longest name for a beer
0: I have ever seen. Well, you know these microbreweries love to out clever each other.
1: Yes, they do.
0: But uh, so I'm I'm not sure when this is going to air. But I'm currently uh, 12 days into Dry January. As I'm sure- big
1: mistake. It's such a big mistake. I did it last year. <laughs> not January, February.
0: Yes, February is the time.
1: January is bad. Dry January when Donald Trump is still in the White House is not a good idea. If you had asked me, I would have told you.
0: I don't know that February is going to be any better than January. I got to Well, it's just shorter. It's shorter. That is true. Three extra days. But yeah. Here's the thing. So many, so many brewers think that the only reason you would choose to drink their non-alcoholic beer is because it doesn't have alcohol. But the Brooklyn Brewery Special Effects Hoppy Amber actually they've put enough thought not only into making a beer that has uh, structure and body and mouthfeel and all those things and real taste. But the packaging of the beer is done with the same thoughtfulness that they would do for any one of their special varieties. And I'm not a huge microbrew nerd, but I just think they've done a really great job in the design and the and the production of this product. Uh, and it's ten times better. And I don't want to diss any other brands, but it's ten times better than the best selling non alcoholic beers.
1: Wow. Okay. This is uh, almost uh, a challenge, everybody. Try this and see what you think and let us know. Number four, I am familiar with.
0: King's Hawaiian buns.
1: Yeah. They're great, aren't
0: they? The so less you think I'm on a health kick because of my uh, get up early, drink non-alcoholic beer and walk on a treadmill. And it is a walk, by the way. It's not a run. Okay. Uh, King, so you say. King's Hawaiian buns are the softest, sweetest, most irresistible thing ever to come out of Torrance, California.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they. I thought they were from Hawaii.
0: Well, I, I think originally, but the, the, the there is actually, and I was just looking up what their, I used to drive by the their plant in Torrance on my way down to see my Toyota and my Saatchi and Saatchi clients when I worked at Facebook. So I remember thinking that the, they've actually got a bakery here in suburban Atlanta also.
1: But wait, aren't they in some kind of trouble? Are they getting sued for
0: something? Oh, I don't know. Should we Google it?
1: Well, I think- I'm are they getting sued because they are not from Hawaii, and they are perpetuating a lie?
0: <laughs> Hawaii, is a
1: lie.
0: They're telling lies. Are they telling lies? I don't know. Well, you know what? Oh, wait. Here you go. King's Man sues King's Hawaiian for not making sweet rolls in Hawaii. What? And this guy. This is a scandal. He's not, and he's from New York.
1: Oh, the worst people. Oh, wait a second. Have you ever lived in New York,
0: by the way, Paul? I lived in Manhattan for four years total over two different births.
1: Wow. So you know, nobody here tells a lie like, I'm in Hawaii making buns. No, I'm not. I'm on West End Avenue eating buns. Nobody. Okay, but they're still good. I'm sorry that I brought this to an ugly place because you are entitled to love them. I love them. I love how they come in little packets of four or big packets. And when I bought a big box or container of them one Thanksgiving, when my family rented a house in Napa County, Valley, Mountain, Um, Redwood, Um, (laughs) when we did that, they were gone in about an hour.
0: You can eat them by the fistful.
1: Yeah. Eat them by the fistful. That would be a great tagline for them. Except now they probably need a defense attorney instead of a marketing budget.
0: Sounds like a specious suit if there ever was one.
1: Yeah, not in Hawaii. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I apologize. I've, I've such. I've really put a kind of a downer. You know. And it wasn't my fault. It was <laughs> my producer who said they're being sued.
0: So, so like that's a victory. Here's the thing. I never thought they were from Hawaii in the first place.
1: Oh, you never did.
0: No. Well, I, I mean, I thought they were Hawaiian style, but you know.
1: Is that is that Hawaiian to make your bread sweet? I don't know. I don't. I. Oh, it's, it's, there's so many things to Google and so little time. <laughs> no one's ever said that before. Um, and number five,
0: number five is Running Down a Dream, which is the four hour Tom Petty documentary directed by Peter Bogdanovich.
1: Wait, time out. It's four hours, it's
0: four hours long, and
1: it's like Shoah.
0: It's, <laughs> it's not as, it's, it's a little bit more uplifting. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's four hours long and you wish it was eight. And I'm telling you, if you're a fan of Tom Petty or classic rock or just good music, this is an amazing story of where this guy came from, how he put the band together, and then the depth and breadth of the catalog that Tom Petty has will blow you away. I've watched it five times during quarantine.
1: Wow. I will watch it. As a matter of fact, last week we watched the Bee Gees documentary. Have you seen that yet?
0: Also great, yeah.
1: Also great. You know, it was cool and then it was uncool to like disco-ish music and the Bee Gees. I just felt like my heart just opened to Barry Gibbs. And there's a great one about uh, Linda Ronstadt. I mean, we're all appreciating, especially during COVID, all the great documentaries about music. So I will watch that. And I really like your list, as I said before. I'm not trying to flatter you. I'm just telling you the truth. And I feel badly that I kind of rained on your King's Hawaiian parade. I'm
0: not taking it personally What's up? Thank
1: you. You know what, it was a great list. And again, I think because we've all been home and sort of maybe a little bit more meditative, the things that make our lives better might be a different list from what it would have been a year ago, two years ago, and what it might be next year. So I really enjoy it as a time capsule as well. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I want to tell our listeners that your podcast, Crazy Money, is terrific, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, right?
0: You can find it wherever fine podcasts are sold.
1: Wherever fine podcasts are, are available, including my candy dish. <laughs> You've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Paul Ollinger, comedian and host of Crazy Money Podcast. You can follow Paul on Twitter, as I do, and Instagram at Paul underscore Olinger or on Facebook at Paul Ollinger. And remember, Zuck isn't that funny. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us and review us and tell everybody to listen. And uh, like that, I say it every week and nobody listens to me. So, you know, do it or don't. My blog is at LisaBurnbach.com, where you will find links and photos to all the things that we talked about today. This podcast is produced in New York City by fieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye.
0: That was Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.